If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Hi everyone, I hope you're all doing well. I hope you've all had a good week and welcome back to episode number eight of the Criminal Makeup Podcast. Each episode, we dive into the minds of some of the worst criminals in history. And today we're going to be talking about the case of Joel Rifkin. And there's a really good chance that you've probably never heard of him, but oh my God, this man truly terrifies me. So Joel Rifkin was a serial killer and this is actually the first serial killer that we're covering on this podcast. And Joel Rifkin isn't just any serial killer. He was the most prolific serial killer in New York's history, which is pretty shocking really, because you would think he would be more well-known. But for some reason, the case of Joel Rifkin isn't really talked about that much. And we're talking about a lot of victims here with Joel Rifkin. He's the same kind of scale as Jeffrey Dahmer, Richard Ramirez, and Arthur Shawcross. And Joel Rifkin is just one of those people, or should I say criminals, that baffles me, but fascinates me at the same time. I've watched quite a few interview clips of Joel, of him talking about himself, what he did and everything. And he just came across as the most normal person in the world. But he's not. He's this absolutely horrific serial killer. He literally just sits there and talks about the most brutal, gruesome murders as if he's just talking about the bloody weather. And I've never seen anybody talk so normally about these things. Like with a straight face, he's so calm. His whole demeanor is just really creepy. He really is the definition of don't judge a book by its cover because he really does just come across as the most normal guy in the world. And he really does show no remorse for anything that he's ever done. He's just very matter of fact. Yep, I did this. Yep, I did that. And with Joel Rifkin being the most prolific serial killer in New York history, there's obviously a lot to get through in today's case, so let's just dive straight in. Joel Rifkin was born on the 20th of January 1959, making him an Aquarius but a Capricorn cusp. He was born in New York, which I have said a million times now, um, is where this case takes place. Now, Joel's birth parents, we don't really know too much about them, apart from they were in like their early 20s and they were both in college. And that's all we know about Joel's birth parents because Joel was put up for adoption. And when Joel was only three weeks old, he was adopted and he was adopted on Valentine's Day, the day of love, which I just think is really ironic because I don't think Joel is capable of love, but yeah. And his adoptive parents were a couple called Ben and Jean Rifkin. And not much is known about Joel's early, early childhood because literally the next thing that I know is that a couple of years after he was adopted, his parents did adopt another child. They adopted a daughter called Jan. And it was around this time when Jan was adopted that the whole family moved to East Meadow, Long Island. And side note, because you guys know that I often fall down the rabbit hole and especially when it comes to Google Maps. So I wanted to see Joel Rifkin's house because the house that they have just moved to in the story, the family home in East Meadow, is the house that Joel lives in for pretty much his whole life. And like I dropped my little man on Google Maps and everything, saw it, and I started doing a little digging on the house. And it turns out that the house sold in 2011 for $322,000, which was approximately $103,000 below market value slash asking price. I'm sorry if you guys don't find this interesting. I always find these little things really interesting. So then I was reading further down in this article and apparently there was lots of interest in this house because it's a it's a nice house. It's in a nice area. Like it was very sought after and there was a lot of interest. However, when everyone found out about the history of the house, 
everyone pulled out, apart from this one couple who ended up buying the house for $103,000 below market value. Apparently this couple didn't care about the history. They just thought that the house was a steal. I don't think I could live in a house where murders, spoiler, have taken place. I don't know. What do you think about that? Like, I just feel like there would be a weird energy. Like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if I could mess with that. Would you live in a house where murders have taken place? Like, I'm really interested because I don't think I could. So anyway, back to the story. So Joel lived in this house in East Meadow and they were a little family of four and everything was normal. There weren't any financial problems. There were no abuse problems. Nobody was ever called out to the house or anything like that. There were some tensions between Joel and his dad. His dad wasn't always the nicest, but he wasn't the worst either. So like I said, Joel's home life was pretty normal, pretty straightforward. It was a pretty loving family. Well, the same could not be said about Joel's school life. Joel was a very shy kid. He was a very awkward kid as well. And this just made it pretty difficult for him to integrate with his classmates. He didn't really have any friends and he struggled to just interact with other kids in his school as well. Joel also struggled with undiagnosed dyslexia and this just made it like even harder for him to communicate with other kids. He just really, really struggled. And Joel as well, like he was a bit like geeky. He was a bit nerdy, which is not a bad thing, but you know how school is. And we all know how mean kids are. And Joel just seemed to be a target. Joel was bullied from a very young age and he only got worse the older he got. So at first the bullying was just like name calling, just like a little bit of teasing. And it mainly stemmed to his posture. So Joel I don't know how tall he was, like, I don't know, but he walked around like hunched over and he also moved very slowly. He was a bit slower to communicate and talk and just move, like everything was just a little bit slower. So that resulted in all of the kids calling him Joel the Turtle, which I've got to say is not the worst thing to be called by a long shot, but just imagine you are being called this all day every single day, it's going to grate on anyone. And this is how it started. The kids just picked on him for his posture and the way he walked and the way he moved because kids are mean and if they see anything that's just even remotely different, they attack. And Joel did give it his best shot to try and integrate and try and make friends. Like he would actually try out for a lot of the sports teams. I think he tried out for the track team, but I can't be sure on that but he wasn't very good at sports. He just wasn't that kid that naturally was athletic. It actually made things a lot worse because he was never picked in sports teams. He was never very good at sports, which just made all of the kids laugh at him, pick on him even more. It just escalated and all of this, it made Joel like just feel really rejected and it just made him feel really isolated. So the bullying did get a lot worse and I'm not being dramatic there. The bullying that Joel went through is absolutely horrific. Quite often, Joel would get his possessions stolen from him. Kids would also pull his trousers down and his underwear in front of other people. There was also times as well where Joel would get his head pushed into the toilet. There was also times when Joel would get all of his clothes stolen. So Joel would be in the changing rooms and kids would go in, steal his clothes, and then Joel wouldn't have any clothes. And it's just horrible, isn't it? Like kids really are the worst. And the bullying does get worse from here. And it turns into actual physical violence as well. Literally gangs of kids would just beat him up for no reason. And this would happen everywhere. Like he would get beaten up in the school playground. He would get beaten up on his walk home from school. He would get beaten up in the park. Like he would get beaten up pretty much everywhere. And Joel did live in fear of being assaulted all the time. And it got onto the point that at the end of the day, when the school bell rang, Joel would just hang around at school and wait around for quite a while to make sure that all of the kids had gone home. None of the kids were outside of the school so he could walk home in peace. He would also make sure that in the morning he would get to school right on time, like literally as the bell went, because he knew that if he got to school even 10 minutes early, he would get beaten up. He would be a target for some kind of bullying. In any breaks or lunchtime, he would hang out in teachers' classrooms doing odd jobs for the teachers. Like he literally, every single day, avoided other children because of how bad the bullying was. The bullying that Joel went through was pretty extreme, like very extreme. Did this bullying contribute to Joel and what he became? I think yes, 100%. It's like when bullying is that extreme, bullying in any shape or form can have such a detrimental effect on people's lives. 
not making excuses for him like I'm not like I feel like I need to make that clear but I don't know if any of you guys have noticed but bullying does seem to be a very common theme in these stories lots of people that end up being serial killers just generally bad people a lot of them are bullied in school. Now, whether that means that just a lot of people are bullied in school or whether bullying is that detrimental and can put people on that path, who, who's to know? I think it's just important to look at all of the different things that happen in these people's lives to try and figure out like, where did it go wrong? Like what happened? Could it have been prevented? And I can't help but think that if bullying didn't happen in schools, what would the world be like? Like, I can't help but think that. Okay, so that was Joel's school experience. Not great. Not great at all. Um, so now we're going to talk about his home life, which on the surface appeared pretty happy, but that's on the surface. It wasn't actually that happy for Joel. So the family didn't seem to really care that Joel was being bullied. And because Joel was being bullied in school, his grades were suffering a lot. I mean, how could they not? And Joel's dad was embarrassed by this. <laughs> like he was embarrassed that his son was doing so badly in school. Joel's dad would say to him, quite often that he never made him proud. And Joel's dad was, he was pretty smart academically. He was also pretty athletic and he was very embarrassed of his son that his son wasn't athletic either. And Joel as well was a pretty smart kid academically. His IQ was 128, but even though he was a pretty smart kid, his grades were suffering. He wasn't like one of those kids you know, those really annoying kids that didn't pay attention in school, didn't do any homework and didn't do any revision or anything, but would still get an A. Joel wasn't like that. Like, no, he was one of those kids that, yes, he was academically smart, but he still had to put in the work to get the grades. And because he wasn't putting in the work, he wasn't getting the grades. So Joel's dad would just always tell him, I'm not proud of you. I'm embarrassed of you. You need to do better. Like, why are you failing? And Joel's dad would just make Joel feel guilty for not making him proud. So Joel couldn't really win at school or at home. Now Joel did try and go on a few dates occasionally, like it was literally like two dates, I think. And his bullies wouldn't even let him go on dates successfully, no. So these two occasions that Joel went on the dates, the bullies turned up to purposefully ruin these dates. So one time on one of his dates, he was just sat there with his date and his bullies turned up to throw eggs at him and his date, which is, yeah, not great, is it? And then another date, he was there just having pizza with his date and his bullies showed up and chased him out of the restaurant or wherever he was and was threatening to beat him up. And he never got any second dates from these two dates that he went on. And it just, just made him feel absolutely crap about himself. And by the time he graduated, which was 1977, he graduated bottom of his class. So after high school, Joel did enroll into community college. He was hoping that it would be like a fresh start, that he would be able to turn his life around. The bullies wouldn't be there. But Joel had a pretty bad attitude when it came to college. He just found it boring and he used to skip classes all the time. And it was during his time in college that he developed a little bit of a fascination and Joel was obsessed with prostitutes. So when Joel was in high school, he was just really embarrassed about the thought that he might graduate and still be a virgin. So because he really didn't want to graduate without losing his virginity, this is when Joel visited a prostitute for the first time. And since that first time, Joel was visiting prostitutes a lot. And I mean a hell of a lot. So like I said, he found college boring and he would always skip classes. Well, whenever he would skip classes, it was because he was with a prostitute. He was spending so much money that he was actually running himself into debt. And I think it's safe to say that this was a full blown addiction. So because he was spending so much money and he was getting himself in debt, whenever he would run out of money, he would move back in with his parents. Whenever he would move back to his parents' house as well, he would drop out of college and Joel was just living in this cycle for a very long time. He would re-enroll into college, move out of his parents' house, go to a few classes, but then slip back into his bad habits by visiting prostitutes again, getting into some debt, moving back into his parents, dropping out of college, 
and then repeating the cycle over and over again. Joel ended up staying in college until he was 25. Like he just kept re-enrolling into college until he eventually dropped out completely without even graduating. And after this, Joel just worked odd jobs just to get by to earn money. And basically all of his money that he earned, he spent on prostitutes. Joel also really struggled to hold a job down. He was just getting fired all the time. He was getting himself into debt, spending way too much money on prostitutes. So yeah, like I said, Joel is addicted. He's obsessed with prostitutes, but it wasn't long until this obsession became a lot darker and a lot more sinister. So Joel watched the Alfred Hitchcock movie, Frenzy. And I've never watched the film, but I've read that it's basically about a serial killer from London whose whole MO is prowling the streets before raping and strangling young women. And after watching this film, Joel, let's just say he found what got him off. Joel started to really get off on the idea of strangling women. I think he also did fantasize about raping women as well, but the main thing that he liked was the strangulation part. And what is just really scary to think about, because we know he uses prostitutes a hell of a lot. Well, every time he was with a prostitute, he would actually fantasize about murdering them. Thankfully, at this point, he never did, but he was fantasizing about it. He also became obsessed with other serial killers that targeted sex workers. So like Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer, even though his identity at that time wasn't known, so he was obsessed with the Green River Killer, and Arthur Shawcross. But he was also obsessed with good old Ted Bundy, who I know didn't target sex workers, but unfortunately Ted Bundy is like the most infamous serial killer ever. So yeah, he also used to idolize Ted Bundy and he would just collect loads of newspaper articles and magazine things on them and like cut them out and keep all of it together. And it's just weird. And then in February, 1987, Joel's dad passed away. He had been battling terminal cancer for a while and he was in a lot of pain. And because of this, Joel's dad decided to take his own life. And this really, really affected Joel. And it really affected Joel because pretty much Joel's whole life, he felt like he was a disappointment to his dad. Joel felt that his dad had died disappointed in him and he never actually got the opportunity to make his dad proud. And it was during the couple of years after his dad's death that the fantasies that he was having about strangling women, they were starting to get stronger and stronger and stronger. I think it's safe to say that Joel's dad's death was a trigger, like it was. Even though Joel was having these fantasies, he was having these urges, he wasn't acting on them. But when his dad died, he was struggling to suppress those urges more and more, the fantasies, the urges, everything was just getting more and more intense. Because then in 1989, Joel is 30 years old now, 30, which is not old, but it is old for a serial killer to start. So in the first week of March in 1989, this is when Joel decided that he wanted to carry out his first murder. And at this point in Joel's life, he was living in the family home with his mom. So he waited until his mom was away on a business trip. He traveled to Manhattan's East District to pick up a woman and the woman was called Heidi Bolch. But at the time she was going by the name Susie. So we are gonna be calling her Susie. Susie was a sex worker and she was also suffering with a drug addiction and when Joel picked her up he agreed to take her to get some drugs before then they both headed back to Joel's family home. After they got back to Joel's house they had sex and pretty much straight away after they had sex Susie then asked Joel if he would take her back out to get some more drugs and Joel um, apparently got annoyed at this like this was the trigger her asking for drugs. Joel is apparently completely against drugs which is just really ironic, isn't it? Considering he's a murderer. He picks up a howitzer shell. I hope that that is how you pronounce it, howitzer, which is like a big metal explosive thing. I don't know, it's pretty big. He picked it up with two hands and used it like a baseball bat. And apparently he picked it up at like a flea market. I don't really know what it is, but it's just a big, large metal object. And he was holding this big metal object like a baseball bat and he just kept repeatedly hitting Susie. And reportedly Joel is striking Susie 
quite a few times and this is a pretty big metal object but Susie was surviving every single blow she was alive throughout this whole thing and she was not going to go down without a fight so Susie starts to fight back and she actually bites Joel's finger she leaves a scar, which he does still have today, which I'm very glad about. But unfortunately, Joel did manage to overpower Susie at some point and he did start strangling her and ultimately he did end up killing Susie. So Joel had now carried out his first murder and he needed to figure out, okay, what am I supposed to do next? So at first he was like, okay, I'm gonna try and shove Susie's body into a trash bag. And this took a lot of effort trying to get Susie's body into a trash bag it didn't work and he got really tired so he lay down and took a nap he was asleep for six hours that's not a bloody nap that's a whole night's sleep and this is when he decides that he is going to have to dismember Susie's body he's just thinking okay I need to get this body into really small pieces the smaller the pieces the easier it will be to dispose of he then uses an exacto knife to do the dismemberment, which is a tiny blade. Like I'm talking tiny, tiny blade. And listen, I don't know anything about knives. So I don't know if this is a particularly sharp knife or whatever. It takes a very long time to dismember a body. It's a very messy job. I can't even imagine how disgusting and difficult and time consuming dismembering a body would be with a knife that's like this big like how joel is also pretty intelligent like i've mentioned he also has been doing his research on other serial killers and like what they did and everything so he's pretty smart he's a pretty organized killer so he takes a pair of pliers and he removes all of susie's teeth because of dental records and that is a very easy way to identify people. He then also cuts off her fingertips because her fingerprints might be on some kind of database somewhere. And again, that is a very easy way to identify someone. So he's done his homework. He knows what he's doing. Even though this is his first murder, he is being meticulous about every little thing. So he has dismembered the body now and he decides to place Susie's head in a paint can. He puts the other body parts in trash bags and he loads everything up into his mom's car. He then drives around New York and New Jersey and he disposes of the body parts in the trash bags. He scatters them all over the place. He dumps some of the body parts into just like woodland area. He also dumps some of the body parts in the East River but he didn't do a very good job of hiding all of the body parts because it was only a few days later that someone discovered the paint can that had Susie's head in. I'm, I'm sorry, I never want to find a dead body or anything like that. No, no, no. But the last thing that I would want to find is a head. Like, oh, no, that's just, oh, no. So he had dumped the head in a woodland area and a golfer, obviously playing golf, hit his golf ball into the woodland area. Person went looking for his golf ball and he ended up finding a head instead. So it's not every day that someone finds a head in a woodland area. So it did make it onto the news, which Joel saw the news and he did have a little bit of a panic. He was like, oh crap. And he started worrying that he was gonna get caught. But the police were unable to identify the body, even though they had found the head. They didn't know who it was. Obviously the head didn't have any teeth in and no one even suspected Joel. So he had gotten away with his first murder. So following this murder, Joel just goes back to his normal everyday life. Now I don't know if I believe Joel here because I have seen quite a few interviews of him. He claims that he was only ever planning on committing one murder. He just thought that he could kill one person, get it out of his system and then move on. I don't know how true this is because obviously he does become a serial killer but it does go a whole year before Joel does murder again, which is a very long time. That is such a long cool down. And clearly because he is a psychopath, the urges of killing a woman start to crop up again. And unfortunately he listens to them. But I think the fact that Joel did wait a whole year to murder again does show how much control he has, but he does ultimately go on to kill again. So it is late 1990 now and he picks up another the sex worker called Julie Blackbird. So Joel did end up taking Julie back to his house. They spent the night together and then the following morning uh, Joel picked up a random table leg. Don't know where he got this table leg from. Like who has just a random table leg lying around? He picked up this random table leg and he just started repeatedly hitting 
Julie. And then after beating Julie with the table leg, like pretty badly, he then goes on to strangle her to death. And following this murder, Joel did actually consider necrophilia. And he considered this because he idolized Ted Bundy and that's what Ted Bundy liked to do. So he did stop and consider necrophilia for just a moment, but then he was like, you know what? No, that is too far. So obviously with the last murder, Susie's head was discovered and he didn't want to go through that again. He wanted to make sure that no body parts of Julie would be discovered. So he came up with a new plan. He dismembered Julie's body in the exact same way that he did Susie. But then he decided that he was going to place the body parts in all of these different buckets and tubs and then fill those buckets and tubs with cement. He then loaded all of these buckets into his car and he drove around New York disposing of these body parts and he put some of the body parts into the East River and then also a canal in Brooklyn and this time no one did discover any body parts of Julie. So again Joel got away with murder and Joel at this point is feeling pretty confident. He's pretty cocky. He has carried out two murders and gotten away with it but he still waits another nine months until he strikes again. So it is now July 1991. Joel picks up another sex worker called Barbara Jacobs. He again followed the same pattern as the previous two. He brings Barbara back to his house. They have sex. And then after they had sex, Barbara fell asleep. And this really angered Joel. He was like, how dare you fall asleep? I'm paying you for your time how dare you fall asleep? He was really, really annoyed at this. So in response to Barbara falling asleep, he picks up the same table leg as before. He still has it around and he starts repeatedly beating Barbara with the table leg. She was sleeping through this whole process. I'm not exactly sure if she woke up, but after he has repeatedly hit her with this table leg, he then went on to strangle her to death. Now, I noticed a pattern at this point when I was doing my research because this is the third victim that Joel has beaten up before he's gone on to strangle them. And this tells me a lot. It tells me that Joel doesn't feel like he can overpower his victims by just strangling them because at the end of the day, Joel wants to strangle women. It's the strangulation that he gets off on, not the beating. I think he feels like he has to beat his victim up and make them weaker in some kind of way because he doesn't feel like he has the strength to strangle his victims and successfully strangle his victims. And I think this is a representation of how Joel has felt his whole life. Like he's felt really weak his whole life and he still feels weak, which is why he feels like he has to beat his victim first. Um, so yeah, that was just my observation. I didn't read that anywhere. That was just my observation and my analysis. I don't know if it's right. That's just what I thought. He's killed Barbara now and he does go about disposing Barbara's body in a different way. He doesn't dismember her because that's too disgusting. He's too repulsed by it. Like he didn't enjoy it the previous two times. So instead he just wraps Barbara's body in like plastic, like a big plastic sheet. And he puts her body in a cardboard box, like a pretty large one, and it fits in a cardboard box. He then loads the cardboard box into his car before taking the box to the Hudson River and dumping it in the Hudson River. And of course, this is a large cardboard box. This is not going to sink to the bottom of the river. It didn't sink at all. It just floated on the river. And the box was found just a few hours later, which I'm not surprised because it's just a box floating down the Hudson River. Like, of course, someone's gonna find it. But once again, Joel got away with it because even though the box was found, they couldn't identify the victim. And of course, no one even linked Joel to this murder. And it's just incredibly frustrating, isn't it? And unfortunately, we see this a lot when the victims of killers are sex workers. Sex workers are incredibly vulnerable. A lot of the time they struggle with drug addiction, they can be runaways. So no one is there to report them missing because they're already vulnerable. They're already in an incredibly vulnerable state and killers like Joel take advantage of that. It's quite possible as well that they're not even using their real name like the first victim, Susie. And probably what is the most frustrating is that when the victim is a sex worker, the authorities don't take it as seriously. It's like, because they're a sex worker, they're not as much of a victim. <laughs> it's just, oh my God, it gets my blood boiling. So Joel has committed three murders at this point over about two and a half years. So that's 
a pretty long cooling down period. Like I said, Joel has quite a lot of control. Well, that wasn't about to last for that much longer because things started to really escalate at this point for Joel. And I don't know why this is. I don't know if he's becoming more cocky and confident because he has gotten away with these three murders. I don't know if his urges are becoming worse and worse. Like he's becoming almost addicted to murder, just like he was addicted to prostitutes. But in the space of the next 14 months, Joel goes on to commit 11 murders. That is right, he's gone from three victims in two and a half years to 11 victims in 14 months. And the MO for these next 11 murders does pretty much stay the same. All of his victims are sex workers that he picks up. Most of the victims he does end up strangling before disposing of their body. The first of these victims began in September 1991. He picks up a woman called Mary Ellen DeLuca. So he picks Mary up, but this time he doesn't take Mary back to his house. Instead, he takes Mary to a motel. The two of them have sex and then very sadly, Joel strangles her to death. Now this is the first time that Joel has committed murder outside of his house. And I'm not sure if his mom was at home, so that almost forced him to go to a different location. Or I don't know if it's just him growing in confidence. I think we've established now that Joel is a pretty organized killer. And most of the time when the killer is organized, they will kill in an environment that is familiar to them. And this motel wasn't familiar to Joel. Like it wasn't in his comfort zone. So it is a little bit strange that him being an organized killer, he has gone out of his comfort zone, but he has now killed Mary in a motel room and he now is left with her body and he doesn't know what to do. He's thinking right now, okay, how the hell am I going to get this body out of this motel without anyone seeing? And this is when he thinks back to his favorite film, Frenzy, because there is a scene in that film where the serial killer purchases a large trunk and the serial killer puts the victim in this trunk to hide them. And this is when Joel thinks, ah, that's gonna work here. So that's what he does. He goes out and buys a big trunk, goes back to the motel room and he puts Mary's body in this trunk before Joel then dumps this trunk at a random rest stop. And the body in the trunk goes undiscovered for a month. A member of the public just discovered this trunk a month later and very tragically, Mary wasn't able to be identified either. Um, so she was buried as a Jane Doe. And it's just incredibly sad, isn't it? Like it's obviously incredibly sad that these women are being murdered, but then the fact that they are going unidentified, I think just adds just another level of sadness to the whole thing. Joel's next murder would occur three weeks after the murder of Mary which is crazy when you think about it because he's already murdering another woman before Mary in the trunk has been discovered. So his next victim was a woman named Yoon Lee who he strangled after they had sex before disposing of her body in the East River. Her remains were found just a few weeks after her murder and Yoon Lee was identified by her ex-husband. But again, no link is made to Joel. Then around the time of December 1991 to February 1992, Joel had four more victims. These victims were Lorraine Orvetto, Mary Ann Holloman, and unfortunately two women that were unidentified. All four of these victims had been strangled by Joel after he had picked them up and after they had had sex. Joel had even resorted to carrying out some of the murders in his car when he couldn't take the victims back to his house or he couldn't go to a motel. Now for these victims, Joel had started to use a different disposal method. So he had started to purchase some large oil drums and this is what he used to put the victims' bodies in. Lorraine and Mary's bodies were found a few months after they were murdered after their bodies washed up on Coney Island. One of the unidentified women's remains was found but unfortunately she would never be identified. And then the other unidentified woman, her remains have never been found. Joel picked up a pretty sick and twisted new method of killing as well with these victims because he strangled all of these victims but he also strangled a few of them whilst they were performing oral sex on him. I know, he's sick. I, I, I don't even know why that would go through his head to do that. Then between April 1992 and November 1992, 
Joel had a further five more victims. These victims were Iris Sanchez, Anna Lopez, Violet O'Neill, Mary Catherine Williams, and Jenny Soto. Again, the MO for these five victims stayed very similar to the MO of all of his previous victims. He picked them up in his car for sex before strangling them and then disposing of their body. There was only one exception to this out of those five victims, and that was Violet. He had decided for Violet, I don't know if it was just because opportunity arose, but he decided to take Violet back to his mom's house, which he hadn't done since the very beginning. He also dismembered Violet's body. Again, I don't know why he did this because he said that he was repulsed by dismembering a body and he didn't really enjoy it. So my theory on why Joel does go back to dismembering the body is that the first kill for serial killers is always the best. It's always the most enjoyable for them. And Joel has actually said himself that the first one he enjoyed the most. He was always chasing that high of the first one. So that is why I think that he reverted back to what he did in the earlier murders because he was trying to replicate what he did in the first murder to try and enjoy it as much as the first murder. So that is my theory. So after he dismembered Violet's body, he then goes and dumps her body parts in the Hudson River. And her body is found not too long after the murder, but unfortunately she was not identified at the time. With the exception of Violet and Jenny, who he did dispose of in the river, all of the other victims in this period, he just left out in the open. Mary's body was just left out in the open in Yorktown to be discovered by anybody, which it was. It was discovered by a member of the public not too long after Joel had dumped her there. The body of Anna Lopez was just dumped on the side of the I-84. She was discovered by a motorist who had pulled over for a bathroom break. And then Joel took the body of Iris Sanchez and just dumped her on an illegal rubbish site next to JFK Airport. He placed her body underneath an abandoned mattress and just left her there. And this out of all of them shocks me because it's like, how the hell did he manage to get a body? Yes, it's on a dump site, but it's next to JFK Airport. Very busy airport. How was he able to do this and not be seen? And unbelievably, her body would go undiscovered for years. And we will revisit this. We will go back to this later on in the case. So after his last victim in that killing spree, Joel actually takes a few months off. So it turns out that his last victim in that killing spree, that was Jenny Soto. She had fought back. She was not going down without a fight. Joel had tried to strangle Jenny inside of his truck, but she was clawing his face and neck, desperately fighting for her life. And Joel was definitely shaken after this experience because he had all of these marks all over over his face and his neck and he had to try and explain them to his mom and like other people that he saw what all of these marks were and I think it was in this moment that Joel realized okay I've been a bit too reckless I feel like I need to like pull it back a little bit so he took a break he cooled down for a little bit he didn't cool down for too long though because 15 weeks later he did decide to kill again so we are now in February 1993 and Joel goes out and looks for another victim Joel's next victim was Leah Evans who who he had picked up for sex and then drove to a parking lot. Well, before they actually did have sex, Leah refused because she was like, no, I want to go somewhere a little bit more private. But Joel refused and he was like, yeah, no, I'm paying you. You do what I say. And because Joel refused, Leah started crying. But unfortunately, Joel still strangled Leah. But this time, Joel didn't have sex with Leah. He didn't even try to have sex with Leah. So we do have a little bit of a slight change in MO here. Joel also disposed of Leah's body completely differently to everybody else. He drove Leah's body to a woodland area in Long Island. He then dug a shallow grave before burying her. Now, burying somebody is a sign of remorse. I'm not saying that Joel is feeling remorse because he's a psychopath. I don't think he's capable of that. And I was just wondering, like, does he feel remorse because Leah is crying? A few weeks later, Joel murdered another woman, Lauren Marquez. And Lauren very nearly escaped after she started fighting back. But again, sadly, Joel overpowered her 
and he actually really struggled to strangle Lauren. So he ended up breaking her neck and then he just disposed of her body just out in the open. And then on the 24th of June, 1993, Joel picked up a woman called Tiffany Bresciani. However, Joel at this point did not realize that Tiffany would be his last victim. Joel picked up Tiffany in his mom's car and they had sex in his mom's car. But then immediately after they had sex, Joel tragically strangled Tiffany. This time though, I don't know why. There are a lot of things where I just can't explain why but Joel decided to dispose of Tiffany's body in a slightly different way and it was this that was his downfall so he had just killed Tiffany her body was in the back of the car and he went and drove and got some plastic sheets and rope so then after he picked up the plastic sheets and the rope he drove his mom's car with Tiffany still in the car he drove the car back to his house, his mom's house. He then took Tiffany's body inside where he wrapped Tiffany's body up with this plastic and tied it up with the rope. He then took Tiffany's body and put her body back in the trunk of the car. And then he's literally just about to leave with Tiffany's body in the trunk of his mom's car when his mom comes up to him and he's like, Joel, I need the car. It's my car. I need to go run some errands. Give me the car keys. And Joel doesn't know what to do. Like he's like, um okay and he hands the car keys over to his mom so then his mom gets in her car she has no clue that there is a dead body in the back of the car and she just goes about her day driving around this car with Tiffany's body in the back. I do think Joel had covered the body in some junk so she couldn't see it, but oh my God, oh no. So then after she's finished running her errands, doing whatever she wanted to do, she came back home and the body was still there. She never opened the trunk. She never looked in, nothing. So when his mom returns home, Joel is like, okay, I am not messing about anymore. I am getting this body out of my mom's car. So he takes Tiffany's body out of his mom's car and he puts her in the family garage. And the garage of the family's house is basically just Joel's extra room. He keeps all of his crap in there. So his mom and his sister never go in that garage because they just know that it's Joel's kind of like man cave. So Joel is very sure that his mom is not gonna go in the garage. She is not gonna find this body. So Joel leaves Tiffany's body in the garage for three days. And this is in the summer, New York, hot, it's humid. It's, oh my God, the body is decomposing. Can you imagine that smell? I realized that his mom wouldn't go in the garage because it's just full of his junk, but surely she might have been able to smell it so we know that Joel has been driving his mom's car around here and there. And that is because his car has broken down. There's something wrong with it. So Joel is trying to fix his car in the garage with the smell and everything. So once he's repaired his truck, he then is like, okay, we're good to go. We need to get rid of this body. So he puts Tiffany's body in his truck. So Joel is out on the road. He's trying to drive as carefully as possible. He's probably read that his idol, Ted Bundy, was pulled over. And he's probably thinking, I don't want to get pulled over. I, I don't want that to happen to me. But it turns out, Joel, that that is exactly what happened to you because a police car comes up behind him, puts on their lights to pull him over. Well, it turns out that Joel, because he was repairing his car, he had forgotten to put his license plates back on his car. A silly little mistake. It's always the way with these serial killers, they get so cocky and confident. They slip up on the smallest things and that in the end is what gets them caught. So at first he's like, oh crap. And he tries not to panic and he just continues driving. He probably could have pulled over and played it off. The police end up following Joel for 20 minutes. It's like a really slow car chase and the whole time Joel is panicking and um, he does try to get away. He gets distracted and he drives and crashes straight into a lamppost. So the police rush over to the vehicle. They now do search the vehicle because they think, okay, this man is clearly hiding something. They go straight to the trunk. They see all of these plastic sheets. They are also greeted by an absolutely horrific smell. They pull back the plastic sheets and that is when they see Tiffany's body. And this is when Joel Rifkin is finally caught, arrested 
and taken into custody. So when Joel is first taken down to the police station, the police at this point have no idea what they're getting themselves in for because at this point, they think that Joel has only committed this one murder. So they start questioning him and um, Joel is an open book. And over the next eight hours, Joel Rifkin confesses to 17 murders. I think at this point, Joel just knew that the game was up, but I also think that he wanted some of the spotlight and the glory. Joel was able to give the names of most of his victims. He was able to go into meticulous detail on the murder of each victim, also where he dumped the bodies. Joel had given them so much detail. They were able to go to some of these dump sites and they found some of his victims. And the police were able to match up the descriptions and the names to some missing people and also some unsolved murders that they had. So we know that there were 17 murders and Joel Rifkin murdered these 17 women over a period of four years. During that four years, the police discovered 12 bodies. Obviously, none of them were linked back to Joel but they discovered 12 bodies. The police obviously discovered one more victim of Joel's when he was arrested, which was Tiffany that was in the back of the car. But that meant that there were still four victims out there that had not been discovered. So Joel described the location of two of those victims. And those two victims were Lauren Marquez and Iris Sanchez. Remember I said we were gonna revisit the body that he dumped next to JFK? Well, that was Iris Sanchez. And it turns out that her body was under that mattress for over a year. How can a body be next to JFK airport and not be discovered? Joel's second victim, Julie Blackbird, which is the victim that he dismembered and put into concrete buckets. She obviously has been identified, but tragically her remains have never been found. And then sadly, there is one more victim. This was Joel's sixth victim and he can't remember their name. And very, very sadly, their remains have also never been found. So following this incredibly long confession, the police obviously searched Joel's mom's house and inside, oh God, they found so much. They found a chainsaw with human flesh on it. They also found a wheelbarrow covered in blood. And then they also found all of the trophies. That is right, throughout this whole process, Joel was collecting trophies from each and every victim. So he was collecting things like uh, jewelry, ID cards, and he has admitted that he would use these items to relive every single murder. So Joel went to trial in November of 1993, and he actually had the audacity to plead not guilty even though he had confessed to this whole thing. His defense had tried to plead insanity. We all know you weren't insane. We all know that you knew exactly what you're doing. And thankfully, the jury saw right through this as well. And in the end, he was found guilty for nine counts of murder. I know you're probably thinking nine counts of murder. I thought he committed 17 and the prosecution were hoping that they were gonna be able to get him on all 17. And I actually couldn't find like a definitive answer of why they didn't try and get him for all 17. I imagine it's just a combination of lack of evidence and some of the bodies were never found. And I think the prosecution just had to accept that they weren't gonna get all 17. They just had to try and get as many as they could. And Joel only ever ended up being convicted for nine murders. And he was sentenced to 203 years. So where is Joel today? Well, unfortunately, he's still bloody here. At least he's in prison though, like he's not out of prison, don't worry. And uh, Joel doesn't exactly shy away from the cameras. He has given quite a few interviews. Like after you finish watching this video, go watch some of the interviews because watching him is so weird. He is just so blasé about all of his crimes. It is, it's just really weird to watch. And when you watch these interviews, you can really see what the police mean when they say that he's just so matter of fact, he's so calm about the whole thing. And he's talking about murder as if it's the most normal thing in the world. An FBI profiler sat down one time to interview Joel and I have a quote from him, which honestly perfectly sums up how Joel is. So the profiler said, quote, for Joel, describing how he killed and dismembered one of his victims would elicit the same kind of emotional response as if you asked him how to make a ham sandwich. And honestly, that is just perfect because Joel really does just talk about murder as if it's the most normal thing. I have never, ever 
ever seen a serial killer speak the way Joel does. What is the scariest thing about Joel is how normal he seems. Obviously he's not bloody normal because he's killed 17 women, but he seems normal. He looks normal. He acts normal. Like when I saw him in the interview, he just gave me handyman vibes. And I think the fact that he does seem so normal contributed to the fact that he went undetected, he went under the radar and was able to commit 17 murders in four years and no one even suspected him. No one, not his neighbors, not his family, no one. Which led him to become the most prolific serial killer in New York's history. And I think the main thing to take away from this case is how many lives were lost in this case. And it's not just the 17 women that were taken away far too soon because they all had a family. They all had friends. So many lives have been tarnished because of one man, Joel Rifkin. So that was the case of Joel Rifkin. And like I said in the beginning, very sadly, there were so many victims in this case. There was so much to get through. And I obviously wasn't able to share any of the video clips of Joel Rifkin in this podcast episode. But if you have a chance, definitely go over to YouTube and watch some of the prison interviews that Joel Rifkin gave because, oh my God, they're fascinating. The way he talks about his crimes is just chilling. Like when I first watched his interviews, I was shocked, like literally jaw on the ground. So yeah, definitely go over to YouTube and you've got to watch some clips, you have to, because that would just make this whole case even worse if you go and watch his interviews. And the main theme that I noticed in the YouTube comments for this case was people just talking about how terrible the effects of bullying can be on a person. And obviously that does not excuse what Joel Rifkin did. But I do see the value in diving into the background of someone like Joel Rifkin and to learn about childhood red flags in general. So we can all become just a little bit more aware of the effects something like bullying can have on a person. And bullying is actually a very common theme in these cases. Bullying can really mess people up. Obviously, again, I do want to stress that I am not making excuses for Joel Rifkin. And my heart really truly does go out to all of the family members of the victims in this case. And that's just something that really breaks my heart about this case because there were so many victims. Joel Rifkin destroyed so many lives because he didn't just take away the lives of all of those victims. He destroyed the lives of the family and friends of those victims. This whole thing is just a complete tragedy. I just wish that Joel had been caught a lot sooner than he was. And I think that is where we will end today's case. That was definitely a heavy one, wasn't it? So thank you so much everyone for listening today. Subscribe or follow to make sure you never miss an episode of The Criminal Makeup. And I would love it if you could leave a review. In the meantime, if you've been affected by any of the themes in this episode, please take the time to look at the description for this episode for some helpful resources. Special thanks to my producers at Audio Boom Studios and I'll see you all in the next one.